Desperation, crisis had made me more resilient, a better human being, more humble human being. Because when you have reached certain level of success, you tend to believe that the only way to get things done is the way that you have done it throughout the year. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby, and I'm very happy to be joined today by Fernando Espinosa. Fernando is the president of Sanford Rose Associates International Franchise for San Diego, Mexico, and Latam, as well as the CEO of Top Notch Finders. With over three decades of excellence in the field, Fernando's firm recruits top-tier executives for manufacturing sites in Mexico, Latam, and the U.S., he also has expertise in executive roles across Europe, Asia, and the Americas. Fernando has been a member of the Pinnacle Society since 2007. As many of our listeners know, Pinnacle are a collective of the top 80 headhunters in North America. I recently learned that in addition to speaking English and Spanish, Fernando is also fluent in Japanese and French. Uh, Fernando, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. So we met for the first time in April at the Pinnacle Society Conference in San Diego, which is your, where you live, right? Yes, correct. Awesome. And so I really, really enjoyed connecting with you there. And I, so many people told me, Fernando is one you have to have on the podcast. Other, <laughs> other Pinnacle members were saying he's like the one to get on the podcast. So I'm honored oh. that you, uh, you agreed to do it. Thank you so much. The honor is mine. All right, fantastic. So I'm always like to hear people's backstory. Like, how did you get into the recruiting industry in the first place, Fernando? Well, I wish I can tell you, oh, it was something really prepared. I was, I, that was part of my life plan and my career plan. No, it wasn't. Um, I studied uh, international relations in Mexico City. And my, one of my purpose, my goals in life was to learn Japanese and, and get immersed into the Japanese culture. So I, I got a scholarship to, to do a master's degree in Japan. And um, unfortunately, uh, even though I live in Japan and I studied in Japan, I, I wasn't able to finish my, my degree, my master's degree in Japan. I had to come back to Mexico and do it in Mexico. But when I came back from Japan, a recruiter uh, hired me to be like a translator for Japanese companies floating the Mexican border region with electronics manufacturing sites, the Sony's, Casio's, Matsushita's, Panasonic's of the world were floating uh, the border region, wanted to take advantage of NAFTA. So I started like a uh, as, as a translator and then I evolved into a recruiter in, in, the, in, in two months. Like, okay, no, you, you got to help us finding all these experts in surface mount technology and, and TV manufacturing sets and all kinds of electronics from other regions in Mexico to move to the border region and then starting uh, those big manufacturing sets. Oh, so right. it was an accident, really. <laughs> That's interesting. So actually, you were hired because your language skills, but then you... What, so what was it in those early days that let you know and let the company know that actually, no, you belong, you're, you, know, you, you would be great as a recruiter? I think that uh, the fact that naturally I, I, I'm a curious person 
And I wanted to help those companies and I wanted to help those people joining those companies because there wasn't many people involved in Japanese manufacturing sites. There was a big uh, cultural and language barrier between the people coming from Japan, uh, people from other uh, U.S. sites moving also to the border region and Mexican nationals all wanted to work together, but no, not knowing how. So we got like, we became like a bridge in, in a cross-cultural approach, understanding each other's ideas of leadership, problem solving, decision-making, teamwork, and, and, and getting to a dynamic of trying to make those factories being successful by getting to know each other, understanding each other, and helping each other to make Love that. That's a great answer. So um, at what point did you decide to launch your own firm, Top, top Notch Finders, Fernando? Yes, um, I was a recruiter for another firm in Tijuana, Mexico mm-hmm. for about five years. And then I was able to place maybe about 30 to 40 people on a monthly basis by myself. Whoa. Uh, the owner of the firm wasn't really involved in recruiting. He was more like the business development piece of, of the of the business. And I was the only recruiter. So he was like, uh, okay, we need to hire more recruiters. And you're going to be managing those recruiters. I didn't know how to manage, not even myself. <laughs> so I had to learn on the spot, had to not just coach, mentor, and develop people, but also my own managing style, if I had any, and, and how to help those people to be successful as, as recruiters. So um, throughout the four or five years that I was director of recruiting, um, I started to, de- to uh, develop certain skills and abilities to uh, uh, develop relationships with those people, understanding those people, helping those people, and at the same time, helping myself to become a better manager and a better director. So when I realized that I had the tools, the tool set, and I had developed the tool, the tool set to, to become a, a business owner, I thought I was ready to set up my own shop. And that's what I did in 1999. 1999. Okay. Wow. Fernando, I just want to go back. You kind of skimmed over something that blew my mind. How is it even possible to place 30 to 40 people per month? That uh, I, The <laughs> logistics of that alone, I just, that boggles my mind. Yes, uh, the Japanese companies were in big need of not just executives because when I started, I wasn't recruiting only. uh, Actually, I wasn't even recruiting uh, big level executives, just individual contributor recruiters. I understand. For companies, so planners, engineers, um, all kinds of different HR um, experts and, and finance people. On, on individual contributor roles. So the companies were like, okay, we need um, 30 people for this month and we need them tomorrow. <laughs> and okay, so back on those days, there was no internet. There was no, I'm talking about 30 years ago. Yeah. There was no actual email. It was everything through fax and, and we had a roll of X or we built a roll of X. Uh, and uh, the, the way that we did it was uh, I, I, I went to the manufacturing sites in, in uh, electronics for American companies and l- looking for 
all the people that I could find in restaurants and places and where I can get to talk to people and get to recommend me people like old-fashioned headhunting, um, talking and developing relationships with people that became um, informers of, okay, who is who and where is everybody and how I can get acquainted with other people. And as a result of that, uh, we started to place a lot of individual contributors. The It wasn't retain or engage search process. It was 100% contingency. I understand. And, and on contingency, there was no long list or short list and, 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 and deep, uh, thorough uh, research process presenting high-caliber professional. No. It was like just, oh, I get to know this Casa Canton. Hey, you have your resume. Give it to me. I'll send it by fax to my client. And then that way, I was like a machine of producing resumes, sending people to all these uh, manufacturing sites. And, and by placing five to 10 people to all the different manufacturing sites, we were able to place over 30 people on a monthly basis. So I was really, really, really good in finding all those people and sending them to these companies. And then I started to develop other abilities to reach out to companies in other regions in Mexico by phone and then and through the fax, getting the resumes and presenting them. And so that way we increase the, the, the pool of candidates for those companies. Incredible. It's funny, I, I started in the late 90s in recruiting. It was still sending faxes, even sending resumes in the mail. We call them CVs, but same same thing, sending them in the mail. But the mail is slower. So you also would fax it just to make sure, you know, so you'd send it two different ways because you didn't want, especially in contingency, you don't want your competitor to get the CV to the customer first, right? So it was a bit of a, yeah, it's hilarious. In fact, I remember there being a lineup at the fax machine because we only had one fax machine, but there was like eight recruiters in my office uh, and we're all like waiting our turn to, uh, to send those, those resumes by fax. Um, but Fernando, you must've been incredibly efficient because even if you're working, I, I like, so you're placing them five to 10 people per week. Um, how, I, I'm just trying to work that that's like almost a placement per day, or maybe it's more yes, than a placement per actually, day, right? Yes. And I was able to send not just one individual because, you know, yeah. companies won't settle with just one people. Right. I had to send four or five people for every job. Right. So I had to, uh, the, the advantage of that is that there was so much for the companies I to understand. hire all these individuals. Yeah. Their screening process, their evaluation process was very fast and, and wasn't that complicated because they really wanted to use the mirror strategy. You know the mirror? No. You put your, a mirror in front of you. If you, <laughs> if you breathe and, and you can see the breathe, oh, you're alive, you're gone, you're, you're higher. <laughs> I get it. I no, get it wasn't really a, a sophisticated process where people get higher because of their emotional intelligence and competent uh, and technical competence and skill. Right. It was more like, okay, you are a consequence, we need a consequence. Oh, you are an engineer, an industrial engineer. Okay, we train you. Boom. And that was like that. Very, very um, um, needed basis. Approach. Yeah, yeah. It just, it, it, it underscores how important 
motivation is. Like if a company is a, an employer is really motivated, like if they're desperate for that talent in order to make sure their production, their manufacturing plant is actually operating and they're getting product out, they will move fast, right? And you know, that's what we want. We now obviously these days it's more rigorous. There's more, you know, selection, there's more culture fit, all this stuff. But having said that, we still want to work with buyers who have a sense of urgency, right? And who will expedite the process. They're not going to take eight interviews over the course of two months to make a decision. And and you have to remember, we're talking about NAFTA years. So those companies were already committed to deliver X number of uh, TV sets on a monthly basis. What's they t- have to produce TV set? Oh, TV sets? Yes, they have oh, to produce right. the TV sets, mm-hmm. radios, video uh, stru- video components, yeah. uh, refrigerators. They had to produce it yesterday. Right. They had to get it, all the production out. Yeah. And they had this uh, cultural misfit because many of these people didn't speak English or Spanish. They spoke Japanese uh, only. Right. And, right. And, and they, was having, they were having a lot of trouble communicating with people. So... We had to help them also onboarding the people and pretty much help them getting acquainted into the process and and the way they do things and the way they work. So it was very challenging because some of the people that we hire, we help them hire uh, five weeks after being hired, they were like, okay, I'm I'm leaving this company. Mm. I don't understand the way they work and how they process things, how they want things to get done. So I'm I'm out of here. So I had no no no. You can't leave because I had. <laughs> there's a warranty. You gotta be there at least one year. And I, uh, you need to stay. So we had to develop this cross cultural uh, bridges with these people so they can understand the dynamics of how to work in a Japanese company in the border region. This is so cool, Fernando, because what you're talking about is a really. This is a differentiator, right? There can't be very many other recruiters who spoke English, Spanish, and Japanese. That that was like your unique selling proposition that would make you extremely valuable to those companies. Well, I had to be 100% honest with you, Mark. I thought I spoke English. I okay. moved from Mexico City to the border region. Uh-huh. And... I realized that I didn't know how to communicate in English. Ah. My accent was even thicker than today. Uh, my 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 line of thinking was affected by translating what I was thinking, and I couldn't communicate as efficiently as I wanted in English. It was better for me to communicate in Japanese because I don't know if you know this, but Spanish has many similar sounds that a Japanese conversation. I did not know that. So the basics of the of the communications, the sounds and yep. the accent is very, very similar. Uh-huh. So it wasn't hard for me to say a word in Japanese. It was way harder to say it in English. Wow, I, that does surprise me. I didn't know that. Um, yes. So how did you overcome that challenge? Uh, practicing. Yeah. I had to go through uh, role-playing on a daily basis every morning and every night before I, I went to work. I will practice a conversation with a customer, with an engineer, with a planner, with a buyer, 
because they were going to be interviewed by a Japanese guy in English. And the Japanese guys had their also their big accent. And, and the Mexican guys had, like myself, big accent. And they couldn't understand each other. <laughs> so I had to make sure that, that the people that I presented were, were good enough sharing their thoughts in English and yes. they could be understood. And yes. I had to be ready to screen that. And I didn't know how to, so I had to practice it. I had to practice and practice and practice. And then by the time I developed certain uh, practice, I, I was able to at least secure some basic thoughts and ideas uh, and, and, and feeling those people that they could communicate uh, the most basic uh, skills and, and, and competencies to the, to the Japanese. Amazing. I love that story. Um, <laughs> how long did it take you before you achieved fluency in English? Um, that I feel 100% comfortable, not yet. Not yet, even. <laughs> you not yet. Wow. I'm still but you a, a work process. <laughs> Well, I, well, you're you're being very self-critical because you you seem very fluent and articulate to me, and you live in San Diego, right? So, you yes. must, you know, you 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 obviously, um, yeah. I, I think you're being modest, but listen. So, <clears throat> from those days, you had that that was an incredible experience. Then you realized that you had developed these skills to lead to train, to mentor people. Uh, so in 1999, you launched your current business. Is that right? No. No. In 1999, okay. I, I make a, a partnership with uh, an American guy. Okay. Uh, and we decide to, I decide to leave my previous company as a recruiter and okay. become an entrepreneur. Uh, I thought I was a businessman. Of course, you know better than anybody else. To be a successful recruiter doesn't mean you you can become a successful a successful owner a business for sure. Owner. I didn't have a clue how to run a business. Right. I knew I knew how to place lots of people, but I didn't know how to run a business. I didn't have a clue about business development. Didn't know anything about admin. Didn't know anything about SOPs. Didn't know a, a thing about marketing, and, and so on and so forth. Finance. So I started my own business with this uh, American citizen and, and we created those two operations, one in Mexico, in Tijuana, and one in San Diego. Mm -hmm. He was running the, the, the San Diego side, I was running the Mexican side, and we were like that for about 12 years. Wow. We, we, we were very successful in, in developing the business from a two-man show into a 20-people operation where I was running all the operations he was running, the, the business development and administration side of the business, finance. So am I thinking that we were successful because we became a $6 million company when before we didn't even know how to run a business. Amazing. So from that standard, from that perspective, I believe that we were very uh, successful. We weren't successful as business owners because we had to hire so many people to cover for our areas of opportunity. We didn't know anything about finance, so we had a director of finance. We didn't know anything about HR. We hired a HR manager. And we didn't know about business development. We hired a, a director of business development. 
So all the areas that we didn't really know, we had to hire a more um, better uh, professionals to run those areas. And that was pretty good until a, a big crisis came in 2009 mm. with, with the big uh, fallout of the economy. And then we went from $6 million to about $500,000 in sales. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So we had to let go many people. It was a brutal experience. Uh, we we felt like we were, we had imposter, imposter syndrome because we weren't what we thought we were. <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately, that created a, a big uh, uh, rupture in the relationship with my partner and we have to part ways. So uh, as a result of that, I started my own solo shop all by myself, nobody else, no recruiters, no... No people whatsoever. And I was like that from 2012 to 2016. Four years as a solo recruiter. I thought that people knew me in the market, that people will, will be so happy to deal with me on a daily basis that I forgot that it's not just about who you are and your reputation, but also understanding that the market evolves and changes. And there weren't the days where people will recommend you word of mouth. The, the internet was taking over. Uh, everybody was communicating uh, with, uh, with companies through the purchasing departments and finance departments and yep. talent acquisition and human resources. Not just the hiring manager calling you to say, hey, look for um, a plant manager for my side in Mexico. No. The dynamic changed, the whole business changed and evolved, and I had to start all over again. Like, uh, like I didn't have any expertise in recruiting, didn't have any expertise in placing people. And of course, also the limiting beliefs. When you have limiting beliefs and you don't know that you have limiting beliefs, that affects your ability to reinvent yourself, to create a better version of yourself. And I had tons of limiting beliefs, self-limiting beliefs. So I, I always thought that I could never hire, uh, help a company hire anybody in, in other countries, rather than only Mexico. I always thought that I never could do retain search or engage search. I always thought that I will never do a global assignment. I had so many limiting beliefs that I, and I can spend the whole podcast telling you <laughs> all my limiting yeah. beliefs. And I had to overcome all of that because nobody can help you to eliminate your self-limiting beliefs, but yourself. Right. So I had to work a lot on, 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 on introspection and, and, and also eliminating procrastination. That's still a working process. But I had to, I had to reinvent myself in a way that I take advantage of all the competencies that I have built throughout the years. And at the same time, also improving myself in many different ways on a daily basis. If you're a recruitment business owner, you might be feeling the pressure to invest in new technology. But how do you invest in technology that is proven to win higher paying clients? Otherwise, overall, you're just making a financial loss. Our trusted partner, iIntro, has a solution for this. They provide recruiters with an online delivery platform for the candidate shortlist. So instead of sending over CVs or resumes, 
you can send your clients an online profile that includes video, key competency questionnaires, and behavioral assessments. It looks more professional than a CV or a PDF, plus it helps the client make a more informed decision about who to call to interview. But that's not all. iIntro also provides recruitment business owners with coaching for their team, not just to help them use the software, but to help them use it to win more retained business. Their comprehensive training program is specifically designed to help recruiters at all levels of experience develop their retained recruitment service. In fact, many of the hundreds of recruitment businesses they've worked with win a brand new retained client after only a few weeks of getting started. To see iIntro in action, just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained to book a free demonstration. There's no obligation, plus you'll also be helping to support this podcast. That's recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained. Fernando, let me just pause there because first of all, I really appreciate your being so open about, you know, your your strengths and, and limitations. And the fact is every single human being has limiting beliefs. And the, as you have identified, the the biggest challenge is that we usually can't don't know what they are. We're we have a blind spot. We it's hard to be aware of your own limiting beliefs because because that's the nature of belief. You know, when you believe something is the case or isn't the case, then to you, that seems like a fact. Your brain just accepts it. And then that's the filter that you perceive the world in. And it's like, you know, uh, Tony Robbins has his success cycle where you have like, you know, we all have a huge amount of potential, but your beliefs, determine how much of your potential you get access to, right? Which in turn affects the quantity and quality of action that you take, which then leads to the results, the quality of results that you experience, good or bad, which then reinforces the original belief. And that can work in a positive direction and it can also work in a against you in a, in a negative direction, right? So the example you gave, like, I don't believe that, I, I hear this a lot. Um, in my market, clients would not accept a retain, you know, they only work contingent. It won't work for me, right? Now, if you believe that and to you, if you think that is absolutely a fact, then number one, you're probably not even going to try to pitch the retainer, which means automatically you, it's impossible to win something if you never try. Number two, maybe even if you, you, you like, as, uh, as your coach, I say to somebody, listen, <clears throat> We know that you can sell a retainer in any industry, in any market sector. We have other customers who are successful, so try. Then they might go through the motions of trying, but they still don't believe it. And so they're not as persuasive. They're not as creative. They're not as, you know, um, they, 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 they give up too easily. And then that, so the quality of the action is poor. And then that, leads to a poor result. And then they go, see, I told you it's, uh, it's not going to work. Right. So that's the nature of these beliefs. Um, how did you, what was your process for, first of all, becoming aware of those beliefs? And secondly, to start re replacing those with more positive beliefs. I wish I can tell you it was the result of a, a really deep thought process where I evolved into uh, almost meditating expert. No, 
<laughs> it was the financial crisis. It was COVID. There were many different, the, the separation from my, my previous partner, many different circumstances that forced me to think outside of the box, to think like, okay, what's happening right now? What I need to do to get out of this bottleneck? Mm. I'm in a bottleneck. I understand that I have the potential, but something very deeply is limiting myself to get to accomplish my, my goals and my dreams. Mm. I don't know what it is. I need to realize, I need to understand where all that garbage is coming from and how to substitute and change those ideas into new beliefs, new ideas that will allow me to feel that I empower myself and make sure that I can accomplish those goals. And understanding that we're talking March 2020, I had over 15 positions to be placed, uh, candidates that were on the final stages of the final offer. April comes and all companies say, thank you so much. We're doing a hiring freeze. We're not hiring anybody. It was nice to talk to you. Bye-bye. What I'm going to do? I didn't know what to do. I had so many commitments, financial commitments, and so many things to get done. And I didn't have anything on the pipeline to be placed. And I got this. And many times, desperation has been my best friend. <laughs> okay. Desperation, crisis has made, has made me more resilient. Yeah a better human being, more humble human being. Because when you have reached certain level of success, you tend to believe that the only way to get things done is the way that you have done it throughout the years. Mm -hmm. And then many times the way you do things is the reason to certain level of success, but also your main limitation to get to a higher level. Mm -hmm. And by... Changing those beliefs by thinking, okay, I never done a search in Massachusetts for a plan manager. I believe that I'm not going to be able to, to be successful. You were right. I wasn't mm -hmm. until I had to. There was no other way. You, you had to be successful or a big crisis going to come knock on your door. Right. So... I started developing strategies. Okay, what I'm missing? Candidates? Okay, I have to be better at sourcing. Oh, screening? I have to be better at doing inside interviews. Uh, uh, developing better, a stronger relationship with clients. Understanding better my clients from not just the hiring managers, but the HR people, all the people that influence the process. I had to be able to overcome all the barriers that I'm putting myself. and then be able to deliver an efficient result to those clients that are giving chance. They are giving me a shot. I had to take that shot and make it happen one way or the other. And that's the way I, I've been able to accomplish it. I wish I can tell you, oh, it was an SOP process. I, I map all my processes and put it in place and, and had all my scripts well done. And, no. <laughs> Fernando, I can... This I can so much relate to you because um, 
I've had many crises and, you know, um, tough times as well in my business. And it's horror, horrible when it, you're going through that. But it also forces you to evolve, to get better, to do things differently because what you were doing before stopped working. So then you have no choice but to reinvent yourself and try different strategies. Um, so that happened for me during the 2008, 2009 recession as well. Uh, but then also during COVID. So I think one of my limiting beliefs for a long time, I was just a solo practitioner in this business. And I just believed, because I had previous experience of managing people and I, and it, it, it was, I was not good at it. I was not successful. So that's experience made me believe I cannot be a, a great leader. I'm not good at managing people. I'm better just being, you know, doing my own thing, being responsible for my own results. But that really put a, uh, a ceiling on how much I could achieve because one person can only do so much. Right. But then Sorry. during, during COVID, um, again, like because I'd been through a recession before and come out the other side and learned a lot in the process, I wasn't so worried, but it did force me to change some things. And one of the things that I decided to change was to grow my team. And that's when I recruited Leanne. Uh, and that has been such a positive trajectory that, you know, our business has grown incredibly since then. And if I had stuck to my old beliefs, then that would have never happened. And I would have still been here instead of way up here. Um, but it was the crisis of COVID that forced me to snap out of that and to try something else. I, I hear you. I, I 100% hear you. Uh, the, the motivation that you get from a crisis, I feel is, is, is more powerful than the motivation that you get from your successes. Because on your successes, it happens to me that I have the lion syndrome. That belief that, after, you know, that a lion goes and hunts, eats, and then rests. In recruiting, you do a big placement, you get $200,000 a fee. You're like, okay, I'm going to go sit and, and enjoy myself and, and, and have a nice rest. <laughs> right. And you don't do business development. You don't talk to people. You don't get out. You don't expose yourself. You're killing yourself. Right. With that syndrome. So I had to switch gears and, and understand that I needed to keep on going on the business development approach and, and, and reaching out to people and working as more as efficient as possible because at the end of the day, the placements of tomorrow are going to come from the efforts of today. So yep. that realization really helped me understand that it, it, not, it, it is not just your ability to get a placement done, but your ability to to put the seats right on time so you can uh, get the results later. I love that. The lion syndrome. I've not heard that one before. That's a good <laughs> analogy. So you have since gone on to transition from contingent to retained. Could you talk me through that process? Yes. Um, since 
my approach to recruiting was 100% contingency-based. Um, I had a lot of trouble with the limiting beliefs, trying to, even trying to sell, uh, retain, and engage. Hmm. Uh, Sanford Rose came very critical as a great tool to start at least understanding the dynamics of engage and, and retain search processes. Mm. Um, Karen Schmidt, uh, Jeff Kay, and a bunch of people in Sanford Rose do this as part of the franchise, do those training sessions telling you the mechanics and the dynamics of, of the retained search and engage uh, projects. Awesome. And I took advantage of all the trainings. Every every training I was signing up and they were like, you already took this one. I don't <laughs> care. I want to master it. I want to become a market master of retain and engage their projects. I don't want to feel like I still need to, to learn something or, or, or to understand something to be able to sell those projects. And like you said, no matter how many times I could take those trainings, if you believe that you cannot make it, there is no way that you're going to make it happen. Yeah. So in one of those sessions, I realized that I was the biggest obstacle to yep. become that a, is a always of a Fernando, we, that is always the case. The people <laughs> think the obstacle is, or the obstacle is the talent acquisition, or it's the purchasing department, or it's the co co competitors, there's markets too saturated, or it's, you know, they, they see these outside, you know, um, enemies. But the reality is we are the biggest obstacle to our own success. It's, you know, it's ourselves. That's, um, you're a wise man, Fernando. I think you've, you've figured out <laughs> well, a thing or two. Well, believe me, I, I had to really uh, do a deep dive mm. in understanding why I wasn't able to, and all I was, a, 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 I'm an expert in victimization. I was like, oh no, he's the client. No, he's this HR guy. No, no, he's the hiring manager that doesn't really value my services and they don't understand what I bring to the table. It was 100%. I took, mm. I take ownership on those faults and I don't, I don't have a problem recognizing because at the end of the day, I was able to, to understand that and I'm working on that. And, and believe me, now I have a 60% success rate in my retained search approach. Wow. Before awesome. I was zero, <laughs> nothing, <laughs> right. none. Yeah. Fantastic. 60% uh, ratio is fantastic. So you joined SRA in 2016, I think. Is that right? Yes, correct. And so then that you went through all their training. Um, Jeff and Karen and the team there are fantastic. And uh, then tell me about the very first retained project that you won. Do you remember what it was? Uh, yes. Um, I got a, a client that um, needed to hire an individual contributor role for a $4 billion company with operations in Mexico. Uh, this company needed to hire uh, an individual contributor for customs for Mexico because of many changes in the law in Mexico. And they didn't want to work with outside recruiters rather than the ones that they already had uh, in their vendor uh, structure. Mm -hmm. So I pitch. I pitch an engage approach to my client and say, okay, let's do this. Just give me that 
one independent contributor role and go from there. Mm-hmm. What, what can happen? If, if you like it, the way I work and everything, we go, we go to the next level position and so on and so forth. So they were desperate to find this customs compliance because they have a big uh, talent acquisition team. They have about 20 people in the organization and they couldn't find it. Right. And they had six months on the search and they could not find an individual contributor that can get that position filled. I said, okay, I'm going to find it to you in two days. <laughs> I promise. I promise I do it in two days, but just give me the chance. Okay. Give me $2,000 as an engaged fee. Yeah. No more. $2,000. We make it happen. They gave me the assignment. So I did. I presented two candidates on the second day. They interviewed them and they decided to hire one of them. The, the compliance director for Mexico was so happy that she decided to give me a, a director position in customs as well. And we do the same mechanic. Okay, let's do this solo position. We're not going to give you $2,000. We're going to give you $1,000. I'm fine. Give it to me. We do the search and we place individual in one month. She's so happy that she talks to the other, to other hiring managers. This guy found me two very critical positions in less than one month. And this is an amazing recruiter. You need to use it. And then all of a sudden, I got an account that represented $700,000. Wow, that's in incredible. In the of, of eight months. So it was after COVID. We're talking 2021. Yeah. And December 2021. And I was like filling positions left and right. And I started with this individual contributor role. And then it became global positions, VP of SIO, VP of operations, uh, director of finance, director of operations for um, um, positions in, in Los Angeles or in Michigan or a- anywhere in, in, in London. And all of a sudden, I was like the go-to recruiter. I love Although this, they got Fernando. the iron freeze this year. But yeah. <laughs> At the end of the day, that those techniques that I learned allow me to don't settle to be like, okay, I want the whole enchilada right from the get-go. I didn't care about getting all the project from the get-go. I didn't even know that they had so many positions open. Yes. I just wanted my fit in. Once I get my foot in, I was able to become a business partner for my client and they can rely on, on my expertise to get the positions filled. I love but that. I, so, I wish I can tell you, oh, it was a, a very thorough process where I had to approach this VP of operations position where I had to go and, and spend two days with the client understanding the position, understanding the challenges and opportunities. No, it wasn't like that. <laughs> then I learned about those things, but not in the beginning. It was more like a, I get to get uh, an engaged fee, a $2,000 engaged fee for an individual contributor role that, repre- uh, uh, that cost them 
$30,000 to hire this individual. I mean, they paid $30,000 on a yearly basis. There's nothing. But then I be, I was able to place $300,000 positions, $400,000 positions, just the base with them in other roles. Amazing. Other level. I love that story, Fernando. So my takeaways, I like the fact that you turned like they had a talent acquisition team, they had already vendors who they were approved, had approved to work with and so on. And a lot of recruiters give up in that scenario. They just go, oh, okay, I guess I'm not gonna get that business and they move on to something else. But you said, just give me one, like what is something you're really struggling to fill and that nobody else has been able to fill? And so I love that attitude, but also number two, a $2,000 retainer is nothing, right? It's easy for them. Like it's, it, they don't really risk much, but it is a sign of their commitment. It's, I always think like having some money up front almost doesn't matter. Obviously more is better, but you know, it's more this psycho psychologically, they are committed to working with you and they're showing that they're, serious about hiring by giving you even just $2,000 is better than contingency, you know, for sure. And you turn that into 700K in billings within an eight month time frame. That is incredible. Well done. That's... It, it was, I was a happy camper. <laughs> I, I bet. Absolutely. Do you mind sharing? Because I think you're you're doing extremely well within SRA, like where are you in the in the leaderboard for the the US? Um, I think at this point throughout the year, I'm in the top 10 of the small offices because we have offices that are bigger, way bigger than ours. Yeah. Uh, my office is uh, just me, another recruiter, um, an interviewer, uh, a graphic designer, and artificial intelligence guys. So in production, it's just me and another recruiter. Yeah. So my production goes uh, on a yearly basis around 1 million, 1.2. I'm in the process this year to become maybe 1.4, 1.5. I'm in I'm, I'm good shape right now. But um, I'm about to hire a, a other couple of people and I have a plan to, in five years, become a $6 million, $7, $7 million company. And I want to have maybe about five to 10 recruiters working for me, uh, develop, uh, me as a rainmaker, developing a strategy so I can get out of the trenches and get my recruiters getting the job done. I love that, Fernando. That's, uh, you've got a clear vision. You're obviously passionate about it, but you've also got just a fantastic um, foundation to, 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 to build on. And you've got a great network with SRA to, uh, to support yes. you there. I heard you, there's a story about you filling 500 positions with an RPO project in one year. Could you tell that story? Yes, uh, it was an RPO project that we had with a company in Mexico that they, they we're talking about years that our, our space business was starting in Mexico. There was oh. no... Um, um, there was no previous investment because you had to go through all the process of, of, of many of those aerospace companies have defense contracts and they had to go through the motions of being approved by the government to, 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 to share those technologies 
outside of the U.S. So Mexico was a recipient of, of those certificates to, 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 to have operations in Mexico and then service the U.S. market. We're talking 2006, 2007. And then a big company, big aerospace company, uh, Honeywell, was moving operations from Canada and the U.S., from Tucson and, and Phoenix and, and Canada to Mexico. And they had also a big Italian acquisition team and they needed to get the main individual contributor management and director level roles for those sites. They were building centers of excellence to do many activities in the aerospace industry, but mainly repair and overhaul of turbines. That technology didn't exist in Mexico. There was no other turbine repair manufacturing site in Mexico or even in Latin America. So they needed high, uh, highly qualified experts, engineers in design, uh, not just electrical, but mechanical design, all kinds of different manufacturing, industrial and maintenance engineering, all kinds of um, sales and operation specialists. And, and, and they needed to build these centers of excellence to, to continue servicing the U.S. market, but through Mexico. And since Mexico was the first, the first time recipient of those technologies, the, the talent acquisition team couldn't find a single person to fit the profiles that they were looking for. So they reached out to us and they asked us to, uh, to be as, uh, as a recruiter vendor for that project, RPO project. We started with 150 positions to get filled in a six-month span. And then... Everything went crazy. We had to do major blitz events and, and, and bring people from all over Mexico to Mexicali and doing massive interviewing processes where they had to, they, they interview anywhere between 40 to 200 people on a weekly basis to get as many people hired as possible. That experience with the Japanese company, Japanese company helped me a lot. Because I really knew that now we had access to technology, we had databases, now we had access to the internet. Uh, LinkedIn wasn't that famous back then, but there were many, many databases with the Monster and Career, career Builder and so on and so forth that we had access to. to, to uh, we, could, we could create job boards in Mexico and have people applying to those jobs directly online. And as a result, I was able to solo place over 500 people for Honeywell sites in Mexicali, Chihuahua, Monterrey, state of Mexico, and San Luis Potosí, and Tijuana, Juarez. All those sites with different needs, different expectations, uh, different products and processes. Because back, back then, Honeywell was very strong in aerospace, but also in consumer products and also in automotive. They had this transportation structure where they had CPG, they manufacturing uh, CPGs, uh, they were manufacturing turbochargers, thermal products, uh, they were manufacturing um, um, stations, uh, uh, um, stations for uh, boilers and, and, and all kinds of different products for retail, uh, residential, and commercial buildings and um, 
so we were able to start with that project and then becoming to a massive partner, filling positions all over Mexico for Honeywell. And incredible. Uh, so I had to hire a, a bunch of people <laughs> to help me um, doing the uh, the communication because we were in charge of all the logistic process of getting people on the planes and flying into and put them into the hotels and then coordinating the interviews and then coordinating the uh, job offer deliveries and negotiating compensation packages and so on and so forth. So the whole process, we were in charge of the whole process. But I, as a recruiter, I was, I had other people, but they, they couldn't find, they didn't see, they weren't seasoned enough to do the job right. So I had to pretty much take over myself and getting all the positions filled, working from 6 a.m. in the morning all the way to 1 a.m. in the morning on a daily basis throughout two years. That's insane, Fernando. That's, <laughs> oh, I can't even get my head around that. That just sounds ridiculous, but you pulled it <laughs> off. You pulled it off. Um, which, like, looking back, um, what would you say are the biggest lessons that you've learned that you have now made you at the successful recruiter you are today? I think the biggest one is always to be humble enough, mm. willing enough to learn. To learn about yourself, to learn about your business, to learn about your areas of opportunity, to your areas of improvement, and, and be able to get the job done to reduce those areas of opportunity and limiting beliefs and, and, and become, make them become a competence, make them become an asset for you. Instead of being afraid of a chat GPT, make it your best friend, your best tool, your best effort. Instead of think, getting afraid of automation and technology, use it to your advantage. I think that I'm a baby boomer and I'm always willing to learn. I don't care about learning. I always willing to learn. And I think that's the major reason to all the limited uh, success that I have had is coming from that willingness and humbleness to learn and to share. Fernando, you've You've actually answered my last question, I think, in advance, because we've just recently started working together. Uh, you've joined our program. And so what I was about to ask you is, you're someone who's already billing, you know, around a million dollars a year. You already have had excellent training with SRA. You're already doing so many things right. Why invest in coaching? Yes, I, as I told you, I believe that it is very critical to develop the better, the best version of yourself on a daily basis. When you settle with the version of yourself, you automatically put a stop on your growing and your developing. Mm -hmm. I always believe that I don't have all the answers. I don't have all, all the, the reasons why I can do a thing or, or two. I always know that there's people with different perspectives, different ideas, uh, different thought processes that I can learn from, that I can enrich myself with. And I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to listen to an expert recruiting coach that has been very successful 
helping other recruiting owners. I could have used only Sanford Rose. I could have used only Pinnacle because I have amazing resources with Sanford Rose and Pinnacle. It's not that Sanford Rose and Pinnacle don't have all the, the coaches that I can use to, to be better. I use them on a, as much as I can. But I also believe that there are other people that bring fresh ideas, new ideas, different ideas. You are in London. You, you are far, far away from San Diego. And in your perspective, listening to so many recruiting owners, so many recruiting experts, their thought process, the way they work, the way they run their businesses, allows you to be a better coach on a daily basis because you listen to so many uh, good things and bad things that when you have a process in place like you have, when you hold your people accountable and make them feel like, okay, you need to get this done and make it happen. And, and you're hiring me for that. You're hiring me to help you. Okay, let me help you. The, the best disposition has to come from you. You have to be willing to be taught, willing to be, uh, willing to learn. Otherwise, it is just BS. It is just like, oh, yes, I want to become a better person of myself. And you don't do anything to make it. Fernando, I love your humility. I love your energy and your passion and uh, really enjoyed this conversation. I'm sure many people will enjoy it as well. They'll be nodding along because you say so many things that we can all relate to and, and definitely resonate for me. So that was fun. Thank you, man. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to, to have this amazing conversation with you. And uh, I really appreciate that uh, you took me as a, uh, I was one of the people that you can mentor and coach. And I am really have big, big, big expectations, not just from the recruiting uh, coaching, but also from developing a long-term relationship with you and your team. Thank you so much. Thank you, Fernando. Have a great day. You too. Thank you for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. I know how busy recruiters are, so I'm honored that you're investing this time with me each week. I don't take your attention for granted. That's why I'm going all out to deliver value for you here, real insights you can apply to improve your business. And if you really wanna help me to reach a wider audience and impact more people, please consider leaving the show a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you leave me a review, please reach out and let me know so I can thank you personally. Please hit the subscribe button and I'll see you next time.